Now, you'll notice that this world does not come clearly labeled. You know, you pick up the food you eat and you can tell what it's made of and in what percentages. Very clearly labeled. But the world doesn't come like that. You sort of have to figure out, what am I doing here? What's the purpose? And people have become more or less accustomed to the idea that we're here by accident. There was a cosmic kaboom and a bunch of atoms colliding and out of primordial ooze plopped a thing that grew up and became me. I am an accident. And I'm just here to find out, gee, what's life about, you know? could be something fabulous and it could be something trivial and insignificant. I met a, a fella the other day and he is a celebrant, a public celebrant at funerals. And people will call him in and he'll find out about the person who died and give a eulogy. And he told me about the time he sat with a family and asked, well, what did this guy do? Where did he go? What did he accomplish? And it was pretty much, well, he didn't go anywhere and he didn't do anything. And I don't know what his hobbies were. And I don't know what he liked. And he just sort of died. Sort of passed through life completely insignificant and right out the other side. What was life about? Well, some people say, well, you gotta, you gotta validate your existence. You have to make life what you make of it. Make your mark on the world. Be into your family. Provide for your retirement. Do the best you can. That guy I talked to, I asked him, well, hey, what happens to your life? What do you do after your life? And he goes, well, I think you go poof. I think you have to have faith in something. But you kind of, now is that what the world is, is that what the world is about? I was surprised when these scriptures show me, show you, that the world has a purpose. Now we know that when man sinned against God, God subjected the world to futility. He ruined the world for man's sake. So that doesn't matter what you do in this life, it's all going to come to nothing. And that's part of what this world is about. That's why people say, well, you got to make something out of it, because ultimately it is futile. And there's a, a whole branch of philosophy that says that everything is meaningless. Just make of it what you will. But you know, the purpose that God determined for this world still holds. Even though this world is futile and nothing you do is going to matter, God's purpose is still in effect. And the scriptures say that God created the heavens and the earth for judgment. And the Bible warns us to remember that God is going to judge all people. That's what we're looking at this morning in 2 Peter 3. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, they willfully forget that by the word of God 
the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, right there in the first verse, Peter returns to the main reason why he wrote this epistle in the first place, and that is to remind his readers of the Word of God. And he talks about that in verse 2, the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Now, that's the Old Testament. And then he says, the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior. That's the New Testament. Now, in chapter 1, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus. We heard him. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. God has fulfilled part of what he's promised. And that is the guarantee that he's also going to fulfill everything else that's written in all the Bible. There are two main themes to the promises of God. If you want to boil the Bible down, what is it about? There are two main themes, and they're all fulfilled through his anointed servant, the Son of Man, the Messiah the Christ, Jesus. One is salvation, and the other part is judgment. Now, the Messiah would suffer for the sins of God's people, the sins of the whole world. That's one of the themes in the prophets. And he would redeem man out of the penalty of sin, which is death. And then the Messiah is also going to execute judgment on the ungodly. He's going to rule forever on the throne of David and make the nation of Israel the head of the nations, the head and not the tail, because they're God's people. Now, here are these two very different themes. On the one hand, suffering. On the other hand, Triumph in victory and rule and good wins. How do you harmonize these ideas? Before Jesus came, the rabbis decided there had to be two messiahs because it's so very different. Now, one, the victorious one, the triumphant one, he had to be the son of David. Because that's the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of your descendants is going to sit on your throne forever, ruling over Israel and the entire earth. They called him then the son of David. Okay, but there's another one, the suffering servant. What do we call him? And they decided he's the son of Joseph. You remember that Here's Joseph, taken, sold as a slave by his brothers, taken to Egypt. He goes through terrible, awful things, and God uses everything that he suffers to exalt him and save the entire world. It all happens because of his sufferings. They say, okay, we see a purpose in the suffering. We'll call this servant the son of Joseph. Now, you know, the Jews were way more interested in the son of David than the son of Joseph. Because who wouldn't? Victory, triumph, put down all the nations. Israel is the greatest. He's going to rule forever. We're going to be ahead and not the tail. 
Who wouldn't want that? And great son of Joseph, but, you know, let's go for victory, triumph. And see, that's why everybody was shouting when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that week before he was crucified. Everybody said, Hosanna to the son of David. That's the one they were looking for. Now, how do I do this? Who let me do this today? Can I go home now? I've never done that in my life. Good thing it's live streaming. Hi, live streamers. Everybody was thinking, boy, this is it. Redemption, victory, son of David, out with the Romans. This is it. This is why Jesus' disciples are butting heads and saying, who's the greatest? I want to sit on your left. I want to sit on your right. This is it. We're just about to be the head and not the tail. But Jesus didn't do any of the things they expected him to do. Instead, he was arrested, tried, beaten, whipped, slapped, spit on, crucified. And it devastated his disciples. You remember the two walking from Jerusalem to that little village Emmaus, and they're just walking along, and what's the problem? Are you the only guy in Jerusalem doesn't know what's going on? Like what? What was Jesus? We thought he was going to redeem everybody. And it's been three days since he's been dead. But Jesus rose from the dead. And he taught all of his disciples what the scriptures really mean. There are not two messiahs. There's only one messiah. And the messiah would accomplish both of the themes of God's promises. And what Jesus had done in his crucifixion and in his resurrection is establish eternal salvation. He fulfilled an entire stream of God's prophecies. Now, he's going to come again. And this time when he comes, it's not for sin. It's going to be for setting up the kingdom of God on earth. He is the son of David. That's what Luke's gospel shows, right back to David. And he is the one who receives all the promises of God. He will rule. And when he comes back, see, he's going to judge. His coming is for judgment. Now, what this points to is that everything in the Old Testament is also said in the New Testament. There's no disagreement. It's all the Word of God. And it all focuses on the same thing, which is God's Son, Jesus. So we need to remember that the whole Bible is the Word of God, and the whole Bible agrees and Peter says here in verse 1, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. That's an interesting way to put it, don't you think? Pure minds. Part of our salvation is we get washed and cleansed. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 3, we have the mind of Christ. That's actually chapter 2. Honest, true, sincere minds. But Peter knows we're not perfected yet. And sometimes our pure minds can forget. We're sort of weak in the head sometimes, and we lose our way. But you know, what? one of the things we're working on as followers of Jesus is we're working on remembering and as we give attention to focusing on the scriptures and remembering, we're not going to get lost. In fact, we're going to be fruitful. 
we're going to be useful. And that's what Peter says at the beginning of this epistle in chapter 1, verse 8. If you forget, you're going to be barren and fruitless. So he's writing this, so we're going to remember. Now, because Jesus has come and established that first main theme, salvation, Peter wants to remind his readers that Jesus is going to establish the second. And that theme is judgment. He's going to come again, judge the world, and destroy the ungodly. Now, one of the characteristics of the last days is that scoffers are going to come. And they're going to deny that Jesus is coming back. And they're going to try to make believers in Jesus look silly because we expect Jesus to come back. It's like, are you kidding? You're really expecting Jesus to come back? And they're going to make fun of anybody who believes it's going to happen. Like, that's a cleverly devised fable. Really? You're expecting Narnia to come back? It, it kind of makes you feel weird. But you have to say, yes, this is exactly what's going to happen. And of course, the big proof that it's not going to happen is no judgment happened in the past. Nothing's going to happen in the future. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything is ticking along, just like it's supposed to. That's because, kaboom, big explosion, and accidentally everything just became ordered. And you got worlds spinning and suns and stars and galaxies and all kind of junk, but it just happened by accident. There's no purpose to it. And God didn't create the world, therefore he's not going to judge the world. Everything just happened. You know, that in itself is a fable. And it's cleverly devised. I mean, you've got guys working on it since before Darwin. This kind of stuff goes right back to the Greeks in ancient times, where they figured it just had to happen. Or it's always been here. Or something. It's a cleverly devised fable. But they say we're the ones who are kind of dopey because we actually believe that Jesus is going to come back. Well, in verse 5, Peter says, anybody who thinks that Jesus is not coming back, that's wishful thinking. And they are actually denying reality. They're the ones who are unreal, not us. We're the ones who are living in sober reality. And he says this is so because God made the heavens and the earth for judgment. That's why it exists. Now, he says they willfully forget this. And there are other ways to translate this. And I like this one. It escapes those who wish it to be so. There are people who just want the world to be the way they want it to be, and that's the way it is. They wish it so. And you even have heard that before, haven't you? Well, you just make your own reality. It's like, whatever, that's your truth. That's not my truth. I'm just going to you know, work on my real, own reality. And if our realities meet, wow, that's beautiful. But if they don't, have a nice reality. And I'm having my reality. And that's your truth, and that's my truth, and... Peace and love. Well, Peter says here that God made the earth out of water so that he could destroy 
the earth with water. It's the way he made it. And the world was different before the flood. Water was much more prevalent on the earth. I went back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And this is what it says in verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, referring to water. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. What I also noticed was on the second day, God separated land from water and brought forth the land. You know what that means? The whole first day, all the earth was basically flooded. There was no land to be seen. The earth was about water. Now, in Genesis 1, verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Now, waters above the expanse means there was water in the heavens. How it worked, we don't know. Some scientists, Christians, believers, said, what if there was a water canopy around the entire earth? Something that would stop cosmic radiation, things that tear down DNA, and they theorized it would make it possible for men to live as long as Genesis says they lived before the flood. You notice that after the flood, lifespan goes right down to where it is today. But before the flood, Adam lived 930 years. Methuselah lived 969 years or something like that, you think. A little bit crazy, but that's what it says. Now, I read also about scientists who used a supercomputer to, to model what the earth would be like if there was water all the way around it, and the model showed that it would be way too hot on earth to support life. So they go, hmm. But it doesn't say here how it worked. What we want to be aware of was in the heavens, there was water. And there was also an underground system of water. In Genesis 2, it said, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. There was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. There was some underground system of water. And what God did was use the water that was in the heavens and the water that was in the earth to destroy the earth. This is what it says in Genesis 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And then later in Genesis 7, it says, Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the earth increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. 
Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now that's five months with the entire surface of the world covered with water. And what it points to is that God made the atmosphere around the earth, the heavens, and the earth in such a way with water so that he would use that water to destroy the earth. He knew in advance there would be sin. He knew that man would be so wicked that every thought of the heart was only evil continually. And he said, I am sorry that I made man on the earth. I'm done. In 120 years, I will destroy everything. And then he started talking to Noah. And Noah listened. So God knew this from the beginning when he made the earth. This wasn't sort of a last minute, man, I'm so tired of this. I want to get rid of everybody. What will I do? I don't know what to do. Huh, maybe I'll use water. Yeah, that's a solution. Yeah, that's a good idea, Michael. You know, it wasn't a last minute thing. It was purposed. And so God actually built this world and the heavens for judgment. Now, Peter goes on to say that the heavens and the earth which now exist are reserved for fire. That is, this is not the same world that God created. After all that water that he put in the heavens was drained, and it took 40 days to do that, and the fountains of the deep were broken up. Vastly different world. And you can see evidence of that. For example, why in the world would there be fossilized seashells on the top of Mount Everest? But they're there. Why are mammoths frozen in Siberia with recently eaten greens in their stomachs? It had to be flash frozen. It could not have happened slowly over time. The Grand Canyon, layers and layers and layers of sediment. And it was taught that that happened slowly over time as the Colorado River just kind of does its thing for millions and millions and millions of years. And then Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington State. Volcanic eruption that when it hit the lake, it sent superheated water up the sides of a mountain on the other side and completely scraped everything off that mountain, trees and subsoil and everything that was left down to bare rock. And there was a spirit lake just filled with muck and trees poking up at odd angles and just a mess. And then some plug in the valley broke and all the water drained out and what it left was sediment settling in layers exactly like the Grand Canyon. And that whole formation was formed not over millions of years, but in a matter of days. And, you know, it shows that there was a flood all over the earth, all over the earth. But as Peter says, that's not how God is going to the earth. So realize we're headed towards the last judgment. And he says he's going to do it with fire. Now look down in verse 10. We're going to consider this next week. It says, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. He says the elements will be burned. And you wonder if it doesn't refer to God just letting go of the atoms. You know, they don't know what holds atoms together. The energies that are in there, the protons and the electrons, positively and negatively charged, what holds them together? And they found that, you know, if you split them, why, you can level an entire city. The power that's in a nuclear chain reaction is unimaginable. They've turned it, you know, and they're making uh, power plants out of it. But if God should let all the atoms go that are in the universe at once, all the elements would melt with intense heat. Now, he's going to do this. And he determined this before he made anything. He says, I'm going to have two judgments, one of water and the last one of fire. Now, understand that every day we live before this judgment happens is God's mercy toward us. That's what this time means right now, this second. Because the ungodly assume that God's delay in judging means that he's never going to judge. It's taken a long time. It's like, you know, you always see pictures of God. He's always this kind of decrepit old guy with a beard like ZZ Top, you know? And you get that old, you have senior moments, you know, like, oh, did I say I was going to destroy everything? <laughs> Man, I forgot all about it. What's your name again? And people assume, okay, nothing's happened, nothing's ever going to happen. Let's just watch some more Transformers movies. Let's just mess around. Let's goof off, man. Give me another slice of pizza. Now, Peter says this is willful ignorance. This is just wishing it were so and assuming it is so. And he says that God is eternal. This is the, one of the reasons why just to assume it's never going to happen is wishful thinking. Fool's paradise. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. What that really comes down to is God is eternal. The only eternal. And time is not a barrier to him like it is for us. You know that we live and die by deadlines, right? <laughs> this has to happen by this time or I'm dead. And, you know, you work at it, you work at it, you work at it, and guess what? I'll make the deadline, but i got to throw this out and this out and pretend I didn't hear about this and just make the deadline and fix it later. Everybody knows what that's about. The deadline comes, and you sweat bullets, and you go, <laughs> and do anything again. And you don't maybe do everything as thoroughly as you would like to do. And you figure, look, the workmanship-like thing is, let's get it over the finish line, and it's sort of done. How did I do? C plus. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> right? If I had more time, I could be Michelangelo. But for now, it's stick figures, okay? <laughs> but God isn't limited by time. He's not constrained by time. He doesn't notice the clock and go, oh my goodness, is that what time it is? And throw out a bunch of stuff and, well, we're not going to fuss with that. Who cares about that? Didn't need it anyway. It was just, you know, let's keep going. And we're done. 
fast, freewheeling, and faked. God never does that. You know what that means? That means he's aware of every single detail. And nothing is too small for him to overlook. That means he sees everything that everyone does. He sees the big acts of national theft. He saw the NHS waste 37 billion pounds on track and trace and pay consultants a thousand pounds a day of whom 11% of them worked. Can you imagine? The smallest he got paid was a thousand pounds a day. And most of that was just watching Netflix. 2,000 consultants got paid that. They managed to flush 37 billion pounds and produce nothing. Now somebody made a ton of dough and didn't give a rip. Their only regret was they couldn't wangle it to get paid more. God sees that big stuff, but he also sees the little, awful way we treat one another. All the little snarky comments, all the hatred. I wish you were dead. I wish I could smack you for that. It doesn't actually happen, but he sees it all. He sees every little bit of rebellion and selfishness against one another and against him. Nothing's too small. So the fact that God is not constrained by time means that when he judges, he will judge thoroughly. You hope he would pass over a few of those things. I hardly remember them myself, but guess what? God knows. He knows everything. Now, knowing that, it is amazing to think that we live right now in the mercy of God. If it's not judgment, it's mercy. What's the mercy for? It's to get right with God. He'd rather not condemn sinners. Isn't that interesting? He's not willing that any should perish. We look at some people and we're so angry that they could do that kind of wickedness. And man, if we were in the judge's spot, we would say, put that worthless person to death. And yet God is better than we are. And he looks at that person and he says, I wish I could save that guy because I'd do it. And I could give that guy new life. I could wash him. I could make him holy. I could make him to be a praise in the earth so that people would know that I exist and they would bless me for doing something fabulous with this guy. That's what I get a big kick out of. I delight in unchanging love. And the Bible says it is his strange, unusual, foreign work to judge. He doesn't want to do it. He will do it because he's righteous and holy and pure and he is the judge of all the earth. He's going to do it. But how much greater it is to save and transform and to give eternal life. That's a glory to him. So every single day that we're not in judgment, you can say, wow, I'm eating breakfast in God's mercy. 
I'm driving on my car on the motorway in God's mercy. I'm going to work in God's mercy. All of my life right now is God's mercy. And you know, people are blaspheming God every day. God's stupid. If you believe, if you believe in God, you're stupid. Jesus' name is the number one curse word on the globe because he's God. And a curse doesn't work if you don't take God's name in vain, see? So God is patient. He's suffering long because he's saving people. He's saving people right now. And he's saving them from eternity in hell. He likes that. So here's the deal. One is we realize what this world is. We walk outside this door and you look around and you say, this world is created for judgment. I live in a world that's created for that purpose. And yet the judgment is not yet happening. That means I live in mercy. But this isn't a place to goof off and forget the plot and just whip it up and make whatever out of it that I want. It's a confused sentence. I can't even finish it. <laughs> Do I want to be a dope and waste my time and play with Legos and then pull them all down and then put them up again and pull them all down? It's like, woohoo, you know? Busy box. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was Netflix. Wait a minute, that was YouTube. Insta. <laughs> ding, ding. <laughs> what fun, all day long. You know what? God's going to burn everything up. He's going to burn it. And you know, judgment, this whole idea of judgment, it should affect us deeply, don't you think? And yet it doesn't. Because we don't think about it. Because we don't think about it, nobody else thinks about it either. So I have an entire generation all over the planet oblivious to the fact that we all live in an environment of judgment that is about to happen. So this is why I read Psalm 90 at the, at the beginning. And it says there in verse 11, who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Now, who knows the power of God's anger? Do you know that the people who died in the flood still don't know the power of God's anger? Because he just killed them. They're waiting for judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, those people, they don't know the power of God's judgment. He just killed them. That's all he did. They're waiting for the last judgment. You know that Moses, who wrote this psalm, saw God destroy Egypt with ten plagues, and he didn't see the wrath of God. Nobody knows the wrath, the power of the fury of God, but one person. And that person is Jesus. He endured the full wrath of God against sin. He knows the power of God's fury. And he did that to save us. He died for our sins so that we could know God's mercy. So have you received Jesus as your Savior? I don't think there's anything more important going on than that right now. Is he your Lord? That's the real question. Because if he is not your Lord and your boss, then you are not saved. They go together. 
And the really interesting thing about Psalm 90 is Moses prays to God, teach us to number our days. That's not even something we can do without him. We need God to teach us to number our days and to make us think, where am I going with my life? How many more days do you think I got? He talks about 70 or 80 years. And if you got 70 years, that's 25,550 days. And you only got 3,600 days left. Anybody here 60 or older? A little tension there increases the learning process. Some of us don't even have that long. How many days do you have left? If you think about the power of God's anger, then you're going to begin to number your days. You're going to ask God, teach me. Teach me how to do this. How do I live right? I'm listening. And you don't have a long time. None of us here have a long time. And then we're going to depart and stand before God. Now, you know, there's people out there being snarky. And they die. And God didn't judge. God didn't burn everything up. And you think, well, they got away. Nobody gets away. Everybody has to stand before God. Nobody gets away with anything. Now, a heart of foolishness is going to say, I never thought you were real. I never thought you were going to judge. A heart of wisdom is going to say, right now, teach me to number my days. Be my Lord and take me out of this. That's a heart of wisdom. He says in the psalm, establish the work of our hands. That's a heart of wisdom. I want you to be in everything that I do, everything that I am, that you would establish my works. It wouldn't be just me, it'd be you working through me. That's going to last forever. That's going to survive the fire. Does everybody get that? So what we want to do then is trust in Jesus to rule in our lives and to make us right with God. That is a heart of wisdom. Does everybody get that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we think about the end of the world and judgment and fire. And we trust, Lord, that you know what you're doing. But you tell us that this existence is not going to go on and on and on. You are going to end it. And we pray to be ready for that. And your word says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And we pray this morning that you would soften our hearts, open our ears, and we want to act on what you're telling us. We don't want to walk out that door and not be ready. So please, Lord, work in our lives. And we pray that Jesus 
would save us. You do a work in our lives. And for anybody who hasn't received Jesus, you can pray, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've broken your laws. I know that I need you. And I believe that you died on the cross for me. The punishment for all of my sin fell on you. And I believe that you were raised from the dead on the third day. And I want to commit my life to you. Please be my Lord. Please be my Savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And now, Lord, we pray that you would bless our fellowship together. Help us to serve one another. Help us to listen to one another. Help us to esteem one another better than ourselves. Help us to love one another. And we think about all of our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, who don't know their right hand from their left, don't know what kind of a world they're living in. They don't know about judgment. Please be with us and open doors and enable us to tell them. Work in us and work through us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.